You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. It's been a while since I've been here to record a podcast, so I'm excited to be back doing it with you all. Today, we're going to take a look at an important new case from the United States Supreme Court regarding student free speech. The BL case, which you'll be hearing a lot about today, is the latest in a line of cases stretching back to the 1970s that have shaped our, how issues of student free speech, bullying, and discipline are handled in schools across the country. To discuss these important matters, I'm joined by a pair of experts, both of whom are veterans of the podcast. First, Sloan Simmons, who you know well, is a partner in our Sacramento office, and he's been the host of many of our recent podcasts. Sloan is co-chair of our litigation practice group and is an authority on all aspects of student law, particularly when it comes to student rights, student records, and special education. Good morning, Sloan. Good morning, Devin. Great to be here. And not, not in the seat of asking the questions that are usually fairly dumb when they're coming from me. I <laughs> don't believe that for a second. Next, we have uh, Mike Smith of our Fresno and Sacramento offices. Mike's a founding partner of the firm and is a veteran leader on such issues as student free speech, religion in schools, and federal law affecting student rights. Together, Mike and Sloan are a dream team to discuss this case. So, Mike, welcome to you as well. Great to be here this morning. Thank you, Devin. All right, well, let's jump right in. So this is an important new case, as are all cases having to do with student-free speech. So before discussing the opinion at issue, BL, um, I'd like to ask you both to provide some background on the Supreme Court's prior rulings on student-free speech. So I'm going to start with the case that um, that we all reach back to, which is Tinker. Sloan, could you give us a, a description of the Tinker case? Absolutely. And, um, you know, for our, our, our school administrators and for uh, educational legal practitioners, uh, Tinker is the kind of preeminent um, case governing student free speech. It's also, I think, safe to say one of the more interesting cases you'll cover when covering con law in, in law school. Um, and it remains at the heart of speech issues in the school context um, still today, even though it was issued originally in 1969. And as we talk today, it's also at the center of the BL ruling today. But uh, just briefly, Tinker uh, involved two siblings who wore black armbands in protest of the Vietnam War to school. In that case, they were subject to discipline for that behavior. And the court was asked whether or not uh, that was a violation of their free speech. And the ruling by the court in that case, one that we talk about on a regular basis, was that students don't lose their free speech rights at the schoolhouse gate, but that speech can be regulated if it causes a substantial disruption to the educational environment, or it is reasonably foreseeable that it will uh, including in, in that concept of disruption, if it's going to infringe on the rights of other students in the educational environment. And one of the critical aspects there being that mere apprehension that disturbance might result is not adequate. And so that is our baseline for student expression regulation, tinker and substantial disruption. I think important factors to keep in mind is that it, it was at school and we're looking at the effects of the speech, not necessarily the content of it. Okay, great. 
Super. Now bring us forward then to Frazier. So Frazier, and a very quick anecdote, I thought of this this morning as I was driving in, I was recently reminded that Harold Freeman, one of our um, fellow partners at Lozano Smith out of the Walnut Creek office, actually went to school with student Frazier. I think it was in law school. He eventually was in the same law school uh, class as, as the student. I remember Frazier that. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that case involved expression at a student assembly. It was a assembly where they were running for student office. The student speech in support of running for office was, um, I would say, if it was, I've always said it in presentations, if it was on Saturday Night Live, you might get a chuckle, but for the school environment, it was not appropriate and that it was laced with sexual innuendo. Um, And the court's analysis there was that when we're talking about on-campus speech, where you have a captive audience, and at the time they highlighted the idea that there were students as young as freshmen, they're all in the assembly in the gym, um, that vulgar, lewd, and obscene speech can be regulated by school authorities consistent with the goal and mission of education to develop good citizens and you know this, the concept of appropriate speech at the appropriate times. I think a critical aspect there, which again is relevant as we as when we get in the discussion of BL today, Frazier, they're looking at the actual content. It's on-campus speech. We're not even, we're not measuring is there disruption. We're measuring the content. Is it lewd, vulgar, obscene? And if it is, and we're at school, on school grounds, that is subject to regulation. Tinker, we're looking at effects. Frazier lets us regulate based on content that is lewd, vulgar, and obscene. Okay. Okay. So that's a good foundation. Now, Mike, I'm going to ask you to bring us forward to the next significant case that underlies BL, which is the Hazelwood case. My own um, recollection about Hazelwood is I was actually, I'm going to date myself, but I was entering high school when Hazelwood came out, and I was in Missouri, which is where the case comes from. And I remember being outraged as a high school student at the idea that student speech on issues of importance to kids um, could be regulated. So that I remember that very personal reaction to this case. So Mike, could you um, could you talk about it a little bit? Of course. So the Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer case was a 1988 U.S. Supreme Court opinion, and it involved on-campus speech, just as you were indicating, Devin. This was a situation that involved a high school newspaper and the students in the journalism class wrote articles about divorce and teen pregnancy. So remember the time, this is 1988. So the principal looked at these articles and said, no way, we are not going to allow the content of these particular articles to be published in our school newspaper. So that case made its way up to the US Supreme Court and the court held that the newspaper was school-sponsored forum and therefore the district had control over the any content that was inconsistent with the district's educational mission and the more, sort of most famous sentence from that case is that the school district had the right to subject the uh, journalism students to you know legitimate pedagogical principles and therefore regulate the speech so the school won that case And even though it was basically prior restraint, in other words, the articles were not allowed to be uh, published, the school district won that case. So Devin, you should have been living in California instead of Missouri 
Uh, one of the reasons that... That's why I moved here. <laughs> right? So we had a court right. of appeal here right. in California that overruled that decision. And we have a statutory framework that's laid out in the education code that actually gives our journalism students much more um, freedom to talk about any right. kind of controversial content. So Hazelwood uh, governs much of the country, but it has never been um, a court case that's been applicable here in California or the Ninth Circuit. Well, you know, I, teenagers of my own, I think they appreciate that. So go ahead, Sloan. Yeah, yeah. I, the only nuance I would note, and I don't want to take us too far on a bird walk, is uh, independent from the journalism context, there can be some circumstances where Kohlmeyer can come into play in California. For example, where I've seen it used for our clients is if you're regulating, for example, what can be uh, what can be worn at a graduation ceremony. And there the idea that the chosen set of cap and gown, independent from the new nuances existing in the law where you can wear items of cultural and religious significance, but that generally that cap and gown that's chosen by a school is the school or district's expression and therefore they can control it as opposed to students. And I would say that's kind of a narrow little carve out from the other the, the rule that otherwise applies and negates Hazelwood when it comes to journalism and school newspapers and the, and the like. Okay, great. So I wanna move next, Mike, to a case that Again, my personal recollection is this case came out shortly after I joined Lozano Smith, which is the Morse case. Well, the uh, Morse versus Frederick case, U.S. Supreme Court decision 2002. Um, this case is sort of particularly close to my heart because I had the honor of writing a friend of the court brief on behalf of the American Association of School Administrators and the National School Boards Association. And I got to attend oral arguments. So I was very involved in this case. Um, this involved a situation, it was during the Olympics, and the Olympic torch was coming by Juneau, Alaska High School. So classes had been dismissed, and all the students were on a public street adjacent to the high school. When um, the student pops up a banner, it is a very, very large banner. I, my recollection, it was something like 3 feet by 14 feet. And on the banner, it said, Bong Hits for Jesus. So most people know the Morse case by that. It's This is the bong hits right. case. Well, the court wound up analyzing this situation as a school-sponsored activity, even though the actual speech, the, the banner, was on an adjacent street. The principal did not want that banner, bong hits for Jesus, to be shown literally around the world on television. So she suppressed the speech, the, the student was suspended, and the case made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court wound up issuing a relatively narrow ruling. They interpreted the banner as the promotion of drugs. Um, so it was a promotion of an unlawful activity. So the bong hits for Jesus case essentially stands for the proposition that schools may regulate speech promoting drugs. And it's been relatively narrowly interpreted as authority to regulate speech that promotes, you know, unlawful activities. Um, so drinking on campus or beer or things like that might be subject to regulation, but it's promotion of drugs. Okay. 
That's great. Okay, great. Thank you so both for that background to what we're going to talk about now, which is the BL case. Mike, could you give us the factual and procedural background of the BL case? Yes, this is the first U.S. Supreme Court case that's dealing with what is clearly off-campus speech. So the prior cases, black armband on speech, student speech at an assembly, uh, the Morse case, it's across the street, but analyzed as a school-sponsored activity or high school newspaper. So our prior cases all involved on-campus speech. But here, BL, our student, uh, it's the end of her freshman year. She's trying out for the varsity cheer squad, so an extracurricular activity. She doesn't make the team, but she's offered a position on the junior varsity cheer team. She is very upset. So on a Saturday afternoon off campus at her neighborhood's um, store, using her personal cell phone, she winds up basically issuing a vulgar rant. And it's essentially, she says, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. And these comments are sent on a Snapchat along with an image of her, um, shall I say, using her middle fingers inappropriately. Um, okay. So these comments are sent out on Snapchat um, to about 250 of her friends. And one of the unique features of Snapchat is that you can set a time in which those comments and images are deleted. And in this case, she mm -hmm. had set her personal cell phone to have those comments and images deleted 24 hours later. Of course, mm -hmm. what wound up happening was, you know, one of her friends takes a snapshot of the vulgar image and the statement. They send it to other members on the cheer team and to the cheer coach. And understandably, the coach and the other players on the team feel like, you know, they're highly offended um, that she's, you know, ragging on the team and on the coach and on the school. Um, the uh, factual background indicates there had been some discussion of this whole issue, you know, at a math class, but there's no evidence really of any disruption. Uh, in fact, the student BL apologized, but she wound up being um, ultimately suspended from the JV team, so she loses the ability to participate on the cheer squad. So the case goes okay. to uh, its challenge, winds up in the district court. She wins, goes to the third district court of appeal. She wins again. And then the U.S. Supreme Court grants review. So the Supreme Court grants review. Then there's briefing, oral argument, and the decision that we're going to spend some time talking about. Um, but before we do that, Sloan, is there anything worth noting about the procedural steps that brought this case to the Supreme Court? Well, first I'll note that um, some of our listeners may take issue with Mike's characterization of Snapchat's 24-hour feature as neat. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, it, I mean, I think cri it's critical of this case, but also, you know, it's one of those facts that makes um, this issue complicated is you can have kids posting mm. stuff. And maybe it's a bigger issue for us parents <laughs> than, uh, than schools <laughs> after the BL opinion. But yeah, so just a couple of contextual things that I wanted to note. And, and I think both of you have hit on the fact it takes a long time for the Supreme Court. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of petitions for review submitted every year. And it just takes a while to get a big opinion. And this one, an opinion relating to how do schools address and regulate, if they can, off-campus student speech is one that we've been waiting for the shoe to drop for decades now. 
And so that, that's just one of the, the points. The other thing is that a lot of briefing on this case, there was a lot of amicus briefs submitted, uh, significant interest across the board from, from public agencies and, and I mean, school districts to free speech advocates, others still from religious perspectives, as we'll talk about different aspects of how and why that might interact with students' private religious speech off campus. Um, and oral argument itself was interesting. I think for those of us that practice in this area on a daily basis, as we'll talk about, I think BL lands in some reasonable places that we could have anticipated. But the, the nature of oral argument and the way the briefing set the issues up, I think made the issue sound more esoteric than it actually was or the practical impacts that were forthcoming or how districts deal with this issue regularly as they have had to since the advent of the internet and social media for decades now. Um, so I just wanted to note that if you were to take the opinion, which I think does provide the roadmap that Mike and I will discuss, uh, but juxtapose it with the oral argument, the oral argument and some of the, the what was being proposed was interesting. And maybe that was a result from the third dis, the third circuit's ruling that basically was drawing a bright line that you could not regulate off-campus speech at all, which is both the reason this case was review was granted, because that differs from what other circuits have said, but also maybe put the case in a weird stance in that it was so black and white as opposed to the regular advice and counsel that we're, we are normally giving districts on this subject. So I appreciate mm -hmm. giving me the chance to just kind of throw some of those thoughts out there, Devin. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's some good background. Okay, so without further ado, let's discuss what the court's opinion actually was. I have a number of questions for you, but maybe, Sloan, you want to start off by just summarizing what Justice Breyer's opinion was writing for the court. Right, so Breyer, in an 8-1 opinion, um, and we record this today on the final day of the court's term where they issued two opinions, and I think perhaps the only two, but and if not the only two, the two of a very few where they're divided along what folks see as political ideological grounds in 6-3 opinions. Most of this, this session's opinions have had a different and varying combination of what you would consider the right and left justices on the court. This is one of those where in an 8-1 ruling, um, reflecting near unanimous views on this subject, the court laid out a framework for why regulating student expression off school grounds is diminished in terms of school authority compared to on camp campus expression that we'll get into, but upholding the ability to in fact regulate expression off school grounds and uh, implicitly or explicitly, as we've all anticipated and argued for years, tying that ability to the Tinker Standard and the measurement of substantial disruption uh, impacting the school environment. But I think bottom line is it's you can regulate it, um, but it's more diminished than if on campus. Again, I don't think that's a controversial conclusion. Tinker is at the center of that analysis mere vulgar uh, or obscene expression off campus is not going to be the hook, which is, again, I think a consistent conclusion with how practitioners have analyzed the inapplicability of Frazier on its face to off-campus expression. Um, 
but I'll, I'll leave that as kind of a broad overview as we start to walk okay. through what are those red flags that Breyer pointed out and the other nuances of the opinion. Okay, great. Okay, Mike, so can you take us a little deeper on the issue of whether and what the limits are on schools or school districts regulating off-campus speech? First, I would note that even though the school district lost this case, school districts do win because the bright line test that had been articulated by the justices of the Third Circuit that you simply cannot regulate off-campus speech is rejected by the court. So the court said okay. that districts may regulate off-campus student speech, just as Sloan was articulating, using the Tinker Disruption Standard. And this decision essentially stems from two basic ideas. First, that schools have a special interest in regulating off-campus speech under certain uh, circumstances. And the court articulates a non-exhaustive list of some of those examples. So serious or severe bullying or harassment that might uh, target specific uh, students or staff. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. that would be very consistent with the discipline regulation in, in California and some of our cases that we can talk about a little bit later. But so a carve okay. out for bullying or, or harassment. Uh, speech that threatens um, is a true, true threat speech is uh, how we would characterize that. Or speech right. that fails to follow school rules, presents a cybersecurity risk. Um, those kinds of are, are examples, but the court goes to a links, I think, to indicate that it's not an exhaustive uh, test and that it will depend essentially on the nature of the disruption. But the concept is you can regulate off-campus speech if there's a nexus to the school, if there's a connection to school activity, such as bullying, harassing, threatening, um, those kinds of examples. But now the, sh the other part of the analysis, the second part, schools have less discretion and less power and less ability to regulate off-campus speech than on-campus speech. And the court lays out three reasons for that. First, that schools do not stand in the shoes of parents when they're regulating off-campus speech. So part of the analysis is when the student is off-campus, they're subject to parental regulation. When they're on-campus, they're subject to the school district's regulation. So this idea of in local parentis, so that's a, a concept that you will see in these court cases. So they're saying that the school administrator is not standing in the shoes of the parents when that student you know, is on a Saturday afternoon using her personal cell phone. The, the second right. concept that limits- Mike, uh, go, Mike go on, ahead, that, on that point, you know, I, and I'm sure uh, you're sitting in the same shoes. I, I can't account for how many times I've been on the phone with a client over the last 15 years or so in which part of the discussion is, well, that expression's happening at eight o'clock at night down the hallway from mom and dad, let alone if it's on a Saturday. And that, um, you know, the, the internet and the way uh, parents view the school's role has continuously led to, happens all the time, online expression, outside of school, 
relating to subjects unrelated to school, but parents coming to the district and saying, what are you going to do about it? Now, it's totally different. And when we when it comes to bullying and harassment, especially if there's a nexus to school, but simple, you know, regular adolescent uh, uh, disagreements and banter occurring online and away from school. This this concept, I think, will be useful for districts um, when faced with with parents who really want the district involved in something that clearly is not a school matter. This idea that we are we are we can regulate and control we control as it relates to the educational environment but the district's obligations do not extend to what is traditional the traditional realm of parental supervision gotcha gotcha that's great so sloan could you expand a little bit more on what types of behavior then would be subject to to regulation under this opinion well Devin, i think and and i can go to the next one but i think there are there's three limiting factors, right? So Mike's Mike's sitting on the in local parente limit. The other one, which mm-hmm. again, I it it's I'm I'm having client discussions echoing in my head. The, the the court talks about well, if you could regulate all off-campus expression, knowing that you already can regulate on-campus expression, then basically what we would be saying is that you can regulate student speech 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And conceptually, uh, it it just that is a was a is a bridge too far, and a concept that just wouldn't make sense, especially when students are going to have views on political or religious or other matters outside of school that we may not let them express if they were sitting in a classroom, but they certainly have a protected free speech right to do so outside of class. So we'll talk it as we maybe near the end of our discussion where there's going to be some close calls on that. But the, the court, Breyer's opinion highlights this idea. It's a practical one that it, it just can't be from a legal First Amendment perspective, the correct answer to say that schools can regulate student expression 24-7. And so that is right. kind of limit number two. And okay. Devin, limit number uh, three, I, I found uh, fascinating and, and hopeful. Um, the court's opinion talks about schools as the nurseries of democracy. That's going to be a phrase I think we're going to be hearing a lot. It's going to show up in other briefs and other opinions. And so the court's opinion talks about the schools having an interest in actually ensuring that unpopular speech is heard. And that simply because a Mm. student is saying something, and let's go back to Sloan's example of that's highly political, or is a, a religious comment or a controversial comment, something very, you know, political speech. The court talks about school places needing to be marketplaces of ideas. And it goes to that fundamental mm-hmm. First Amendment concept of how do you deal with offensive speech? You allow it and you facilitate it and you invite more speech. So you don't regulate the speech, you counter unpopular speech by allowing um, a discussion. And of course, what are schools mm-hmm. about? Schools are about teaching critical thinking and allowing um, opposing viewpoints to be aired in hopefully a civil dialogue fashion. Um, so the, the court actually seems to go out of its way to say, look, if it's off-campus speech, that's got to be a limiting factor because the schools need to ensure that all ideas are heard. Okay. 
It's a very American view of free speech. Yeah. Right. And and education. I mean, it's a classic John Dewey type view of of education being the factory for preparing students for society. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm with you, Mike, that it's it's almost a throwback. I mean, the marketplace of ideas concept uh, was really relied upon heavily as you look at the Warren Court's free speech opinions and, and on all aspects, not just education related so I, I it's it is it is, uh, it is a, a insightful measure that they've included and I think you know in some ways I mean we certainly don't have to get into it but it's interesting in in the current political and social environment we're in um, what that says and I think folks on all sides can can take something out of that concept uh, depending on whatever your views are but uh, interesting yeah. that that would be the another of the three linchpin on limiting factors that they that they raised. Absolutely. All right, I want to spend some time talking about the impact of this opinion in California. But before we turn away from the opinion itself, I note that um, Justice Alito filed a concurring opinion, and Justice Thomas was the lone dissenter. Is there anything worth noting from those opinions, Sloan? Well, one, Justice Thomas has been consistent on this, on his view on this this issue, dating back to the Morse opinion in 2007, and that his originalist, um, textualist kind of perspective and looking at the historical case law reaches the conclusion that students really don't have First Amendment rights and that the long arm of a school's authority reaches beyond uh, the schoolhouse gates, and therefore he would have um, allowed, he would allow without without the limits even imposed by this opinion for that regulation. Um, and he's been on, on his own in that view, but it's interesting from an academic perspective. Justice Alito's concurring opinion, I think, is, as is often the case of a concurring opinion, is perhaps looking forward. And I think uh, the takeaways from that, in my view, are he, he was wanting to make clear kind of what exactly, as a concurring opinion often does, what are we saying this, what type of expression are we saying can be regulated versus what it can't, what, you know, further clarifying his perspective on on what the ruling means. Now it's a single concurring opinion, so it doesn't carry the weight, but it is looking forward. And I think the heart of what he, he is getting at is that there is going to be uh, potentially controversial um, political or religious expression by students when off campus, and this this standard or framework does not permit the regulation of that expression. And I think you you have to look at his concurring opinion in tandem with Justice Alito's perspectives on religious expression in general and the free exercise clause and where he has been in relation to employee expression, et cetera, which is a he is a, a strong advocate for the protection of religious expression, uh, and especially outside of, of uh, you know, when when not within reach of regulation, whether it's a school, an employee, or a or a student. And so, I, I think what it foreshadows is one of the tougher areas here is that, as a you know, one hypothetical that comes to mind for me is that there is certain perhaps religiously derived viewpoints that might be perceived as um, derogatory in relation to a student group, such as religious viewpoints that maybe are, are not favorable to LGBTQ students. 
And certainly if that expression is occurring on school grounds, it would be something which consistent with California's anti-discrimination laws and the Tinker Standard as far as infringing on the rights of other students that we could regulate uh, that expression. But if occurring off school grounds uh, under the limits imposed by the BL case, that's gonna be more of a stretch. And so there's gonna be some really, I think in the end, some of our closer calls will be expression that maybe doesn't directly target an individual student, but could be characterized as targeting or being derogatory toward a group of students, but is based upon a private religious viewpoint and is expressed mm -hmm. off school grounds, perhaps using the neat function on Snapchat that it's gone in 24 hours. And does that, does that check the box for us to reach under BL and Tinker or not? And I think under Alito's concurring opinion, I think that his answer would be no, you don't get to touch that. So I, I think that'll be some of the more complicated areas that we deal with, with the standard, okay. which is nothing different from the same type of complicated scenarios of that ilk that we've been looking at for quite some time now. Okay, great. That frames us nicely to start talking about the impact of this case in California. So I'm going to stay with you for a few minutes, Sloan. Please talk a little bit about the what, how this case will impact what we understand to be California law on the regulation of free speech, um, just sort of on a general basis. And then perhaps you could talk um, a little bit about the JC case, which I think has some parallels to this case. Right. So right. if you could take us there. One, picking up off something Mike said earlier, you know, I think mm -hmm. that a critical takeaway for our school administrators is that this opinion is in fact favorable to school districts. It is what NSBA and what we would have said as, as, as a firm that represents school districts is what we would w want to see. The third appellate, the third circuit's opinion getting overruled. So while the headlines may say that the student prevailed and the speeches protected, the more important and long-term takeaway is, is the affirmation that you can regulate off-campus speech, in essence, under Tinker, so long as you're measuring the red flags. And the red flags, whether it's, hey, hey school district, you are not the parent of these students on the weekend or at 10 o'clock at night, and we need to be careful about regulating expression at all hours and all days of the week, and students do have free speech rights outside of school, are all red flags or pauses that we would normally and have historically advised districts to take account of when measuring whether or not they can regulate this off-campus expression, which is always kind of a very fact-specific scenario. And like in BL, in those scenarios where we cannot point to direct um, evidence of substantial disruption, or foreseeable disruption because, for example, a like situation occurred a month prior and it resulted in significant disruption. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we would have always said, well, if, if it's off school grounds on a personal device, was removed in a short period of time, sent to your private set of uh, recipients and did not cause substantial disruption, we'd say all those markers suggest you should not regulate that expression. Still doesn't change what we would also advise, which is per perfectly fine to have a talk with a student and parent and say, hey, yeah, can we kind of watch what we're doing here? Or, or is there a better way to communicate this? So I think big picture, what this does is reaffirms and gives us 
further kind of fodder to rely upon as to the steps you'll go through to measure can we reach this expression or not. And then quickly, which I think is, like I think I said earlier, we've been waiting for the shoe to drop and express opinion on off-campus speech for a long time. And if you go all the way back to the first California opinion in this area, the JC case in 2009, it was out of the Central District of California. And involved hey, Go ahead, Mike, I'm sorry. Before you uh, launch into the JC case, I, I just, two comments. Um, one is, I think you're, you're hitting on some important points. First, that whether it's on-campus speech or off-campus speech, these situations are always nuanced. So it's fact-based. And right. for every, whenever they come up, it requires an individual kind of analysis, laying out the factors that the U.S. Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit and California courts have laid out. So that's, I guess, comment one. one. Then comment two is, because Tinker is now going to apply, as it has in California for some time, to off-campus speech, that the school administrator's investigation becomes critical because what is the evidence that the speech has caused a disruption on campus? Well, that's based on what that school itself has done quickly. Because like in this case, 24 hours later, the Snapchat images and, and text are gone. So the school administrator's ability to gather documentation through its investigation, that it was discussed in class, that kids were kicking it around on the campus, that the girls on the JV cheer team felt humiliated or they were angry, that that team spirit was compromised, it was discussed when they got together at practice. Were, were, were all of those facts part of the school administrator's investigation? So I just want to put a little you know, note there that the administrator's investigation becomes critical in the speech analysis. Mm. That's really interesting and helpful. Thank you. Mike, do you want yeah. to also add, and there's a there's kind of a related concept on the investigation piece that I'll d discuss in going over the JC case. But Mike, you know, another concept that you and I have discussed that, that I think it would be worth hearing from you on is, you know, coming into this case, we knew we were going to get a ruling on what is the standard for off-campus speech regulation? We also were very curious about, well, is the court going to draw a distinction between regulating expression that results in consequences to what we would call the right to education, you know, in the classroom, curricular related, et cetera, versus privileged activities, which often correlates with an extracurricular, whether it's participation in graduation or it's participation on the sports or cheer team, do you want to comment on kind of some of the conclusions we've reached that that this opinion basically uh, appears to wash away any distinction between the two of those when it comes to the uh, regulating expression and the consequences that can result from that? I think this is a very interesting question. And, and honestly, before I read the opinion, the issue that I most wanted to see is how the court handled this concept of privilege versus right. Um, so in, in other words, the this, this setting oftentimes, remember here, the discipline, she's not suspended from school. She's not expelled. The regulation here is that she's put on the JV team and then ultimately suspended from an extracurricular activity. Um, so people may remember the Vernonia case. That was the U.S. Supreme Court case that said 
hey, athletes can be held to a higher standard. So if you're participating in an extracurricular activity, whether it's cheer or football, hey, we can have you submit to, to drug tests because it's a privilege to be on the team. It's not a right. Whereas education is a fundamental right, being on the, the you know, varsity cheer squad is a privilege. But in the BL case, there is absolutely no discussion of that distinction. So it's Yeah, so there is no analysis of this concept of privilege versus right. The court ultimately says that it was a violation of BL's right as a student to engage in free speech when they disciplined her by restricting her participation in an extracurricular activity. So they eliminate this distinction between privilege and right, right to attend school, uh, when it comes to the First Amendment free speech analysis. Yeah, and I, I think the only piece I'd add there, and, and Mike, you and I kind of, we exchanged some emails on this. There, there's, there's kind of been one case that we've had to kind of look at on that subject for several years now, and I'm terrible about it. Maybe it's been 10 years now. Uh, there was a district court case that involved a volleyball player um, who um, did some online expression and uh, they attempted to remove that student from the volleyball team or suspend her from that team for a period of time. And the court's analysis there was unlike the level of expectation of privacy from a Fourth Amendment perspective or the level of right or protection entitled to students from a due process perspective, which is reduced when it go, comes to privileges versus right, that court's view, a single district court's view, is that there is no such delineation when it comes to free speech. And it cites to a passage in Tinker in which, and it's a single line, but basically Tinker itself referring to curricular or extracurricular activities kind of all in the same same basket. So I, I do think, I, I totally agree with you, Mike, that, it's, that the opinion is silent on the subject except for the except to the extent that it talks about was there disruption to the extracurricular activity the cheer program and it reaches the same conclusion as it did to the curricular program that there was no such disruption but it implicitly wipes away that distinction um, tbd if further litigation down the road attempts to go 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 down that angle in a different way mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Sloan. So I Great. think the conclusion and the you know the case that you're referencing out of Indiana, that TV versus the Smith Green Schools case, you know that involved a situation where girls were suspended from the volleyball team for posting some really raunchy, sexy kind of photos of themselves uh, that they took at a slumber party off campus, and the court held Tinker applied and there was no disruption, so not appropriate to regulate speech. So the BL case, the U.S. Supreme Court is essentially saying the same thing. Off-campus right. speech, tinker applies. If no evidence of disruption at school, then it's okay. So they don't lower the bar just because it happens to be an extracurricular activity. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so as we look towards moving to a conclusion here, I want to go back and talk about the application to um, California cases. We've mentioned the JC case. So what I'd like to do is go back and forth between the two of you, just briefly describe um, some of the leading cases in the Ninth Circuit um, and, um, and and what those cases already are and whether how we look at that, those, that case law would change based on the BL ruling 
Um, Sloan, so why don't you start with the JC case? Yeah, JC is very interesting that not only is it one of the earlier ones in California from 2009, but the parallels it has to this case. JC involved a student with friends at a restaurant after school, recorded a video um, that made some disparaging remarks about a fellow student, referring to the student in, in unpleasant ways. Video was posted, I believe on YouTube, was up for an evening. Uh, a large number, but I don't think more than what was involved in BL of others saw the video. Video was removed by the next morning. Parent of the student who was the target of expression came in and complained. That meeting with the student who was the target of of the speech lasted about one period. And then the student returned to class. An investigation ensued to determine who posted what who was involved, what was said, because it had been removed, but I think before the next morning. And the court in JC, just like here in BL, said Tinker will apply to off-campus expression. So we're not measuring simply the content of the speech and whether or not it's vulgar or, or whatnot, but that in this case, there was no substantial disruption of the educational environment. The student who was the target returned to class quickly uh, after having discussed the issue, the video was removed and the mere fact that it took staff um, several days and significant time to investigate the matter does not in itself equate to substantial disruption to meet the tinker standard which is something we've preached to our district clients for years now and i think that's kind of the, the sweep back mike that i think relates to that investigation concept that you discussed how important it is uh, to establish facts if you're going to ultimately regulate or impose consequences for off, from off-campus speech, but site administrators need to re- remember that the mere fact that they've had to investigate that matter is not going to check the box for substantial disruption on its own. So a case that was uh, uh, some time ago now, right? Uh, I mean, we're dating back over a decade, but very similar to what BL, uh, the facts of BL and ultimately the holding. Okay, great. Um Mike, could you talk about the Weiner case? Um, yes. Uh, before we do that, I just want to emphasize the point that Sloan just made, and that is from a school administrator perspective, the fact that there was you know, some fear, some apprehension, the need to investigate, uh, reach a conclusion, talk to parents, uh, interview students, none of that constitutes disruption. That is just part of the process. So I think that's an an important point for our our clients to understand. So on to the the Weimar case here. So this is a Ninth Circuit uh, opinion that's fairly narrow. So what happened here is we had a high school student who sent multiple violent, threatening messages through MySpace. So social media platform doesn't even exist anymore, but kind of akin to Facebook. Mm -hmm. The messages were sent to students at his high school, but it's this off-campus speech. And he actually details, hey, I'm going to be on campus. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to shoot some people up, name students, talks about the weapons and the ammunitions that he has. So classmates notify, of course, the school and the police, and ultimately the student is detained, suspended. And then the free speech argument occurs in which he says, hey, I didn't really mean that, this is all off-campus speech, and the court says, no, this is disrupting, threatening speech that had a direct connection uh, to the campus, and the school lawfully regulated it under Tinker. 
Okay. Okay. And again, uh, it seems to me, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, the conclusions of the BL case probably would not change the outcome now in, in Weinar. They Is would not. Correct? They would, and especially when it comes to threats of violence, there's another whole line of cases, uh-huh. even outside of Tinker, that talk about if it is true threat speech, in other words, threat that an objectively reasonable person would interpret as being uh, threatening and that there is a substantial likelihood that the threat is actually going to be carried out. So we see these cases come up where sometimes there's rather dark or black poetry or assignments, things like that, in which students are articulating mm-hmm. um, gothic themes and so sometimes it's hard for the school administrator to differentiate when is it a threat of violence and when is it art or poetry or comedy Um, so there is another line of cases but if it is truly threatening speech um, that a reasonable person is going to think could be carried out on campus the courts are going to kind of bend over backwards to allow the school district to you know call in law enforcement regulate and ensure safety okay great um, could you do the same brief synopsis for me on the CR case out of Oregon? Yes, this involved the Eugene School District, as you indicated, in Southern Oregon mm-hmm. that went up to the Ninth Circuit. And in the CR case, so this is one of the few cases in which the off-campus speech is not social media. Um, so in this situation, mm. we had the speech occurring, you know, in person to other students. But it was right after school. So school was just letting out the students are just a few hundred feet from the school's property line and we have a an older student basically uh, making very sexually suggesting inappropriate statements to a couple of younger students while they're walking home from school so it's off-campus speech non-social media speech but the court that the school wound up disciplining the, the student for this sexually suggestive kind of pointed and hurtful comments. And here the court said, again, off-campus speech, but Tinker applies. So was there disruption? Did it impact the school environment? Answer, yes. So the suspension was held to be valid. You know, so ultimately we kind of wind up with this Ninth Circuit test that is essentially saying, look, if there's a nexus to the school, where it's reasonably foreseeable that the off-campus speech is going to get connected to the school environment and be disruptive, or it's going to collide with the rights of other students that it can be regulated. So again, the -hmm. the, uh, CR case, like the Weimar case, are, I think, very consistent with the U.S. Supreme Court opinion in the BL decision. Great. Okay, Sloan, a couple more cases on my mind before we start to wrap up. What about Shen versus Albany? which is a California case. Shen v. Albany, USD, one of the more recent cases from 2017, Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of first of its kind opinion in some ways in terms of the the nature of the expression that was at issue, but also, uh, as I describe it, again, I think conclusions directly consistent with BL. In that case, a student was expelled for Instagram posts in which there was in particular um, images of fellow students that were taken on campus as well as a coach, um, African-Americans, both of them, one of them with a a noose around the head um, and other comments of a racially derogatory nature. So while being posted on Instagram 
outside of school, the images were taken from school and they were related directly to a specific student and staff member. Ultimately, based on the racially derogatory and harassing nature of that expression, the district expelled that student and the court in Shen upheld that discipline and, and attendant regulation of the student's expression because of the nexus to campus. And I think consistent with the framework that Mike has described under BL, here we have direct targets in terms of students and staff related to the school that, it, that are subject to racially harassing expression. And in fact, the court made findings of substantial disruption resulting to the educational environment um, as a result of that expression, that once once that expression was identified on campus, it did in fact cause a disruption. And so while Tinker continues, and I always say it, it tells us to look at the effects of the speech, not the, the content, there will be certain content that is more foreseeably likely to result in disruption such as this and the, and the more, mm-hmm. um, so long as you've got that direct nexus to campus, the more abhorrent that that expression is, I think the, the, the greater leeway you have to regulate. So Instagram, student targets, staff targets, racially harassing expression, although being posted outside of school, subject to regulation, and I think still would be consistent with the BL opinion. There was also an aspect of that case that I think they, they, they disciplined by way of suspension, certain students for liking the expression that uh, that the the main student had posted and that was upheld as well. And Sloan, if okay. I could comment on that before we move on, Devin, yeah. what mm-hmm. what I found interesting in the BL decision is when we reference the Tinker standard, the Tinker case has literally been cited thousands and thousands of times in lower court opinions and in state court mm-hmm. opinions. I would estimate this is just totally, you know, guesstimate, 90% of the time when we say we're talking about the Tinker standard, we're thinking disruption. But Tinker in its original 1969 decision really has two prongs, disruption or infringing or colliding with the rights of others. And that gets to this bullying harassment analysis that Sloan Mm -hmm. just walked through that was applied in the Shin case. In the BL decision, in Justice Breyer's opinion, they, I found it interesting that they overtly make that point. They go back and unlike many, many other decisions, they talk about Tinker having two standards, disruption and colliding with the rights of others. So I found that helpful from a, so from a school district perspective, as attorneys that are representing school administrators and working with schools on these issues, I think they're giving emphasis to saying harassing, whether it's based on race or national origin or gender, whatever it might be, but that kind of targeted bullying speech, we're calling it out and we're reminding you that Tinker has this standard where you cannot infringe on the rights of other students to uh, both emotionally and physically be safe at school. And so I found that to be, again, one of the positive aspects of this decision from a school district perspective. Yeah, absolutely. That's very helpful. That's a fa- yeah, thank it, you. It's a fantastic point, Mike. I mean, and I, I don't think, yeah. I, it's not 90%. I think 99% of the opinions have always hinged on 
disruption. And you're mm-hmm. absolutely right to point out every time Breyer talks about the standard, he, he hits both prongs. Right, right. Okay, one more case I want to mention uh, on our summary of Ninth Circuit law before we wrap up, um, McNeil. Um, could you talk briefly about that case, Sloan? Yeah, yeah. And so McNeil, I, I think, again, it's 2019. So it's the most recent Ninth Circuit opinion kind of in this right. area. It's off-campus expression. It's not of an online nature, but um, a, a student's parent discovered the student's personal journal that was maintained at home and included a hit list of, of uh, other students. Law enforcement was involved. They searched the house. They found ammunition. But they, they ultimately determined that there wasn't anything to indicate that the student had gone to a point where he was planning to carry out this, this hit list concept. Now, when word got out that of this expression, the reaction was rightfully so, especially in, if we go back to um, pre-COVID school closures, uh, we can all recall that the, the run of unfortunate shootings, let alone school shootings, that were occurring, uh, you know, had everyone, you know, as had everyone on, you know, high alert on, on these types of issues. And ultimately the student was subject to expulsion by the district because of this expression, even though law enforcement had determined that they potentially could not carry it out. And it was um, the, the conclusion of the Ninth Circuit was that even though off campus, you can regulate off campus expression, especially when it constitutes a credible identifiable threat to others or the school community. So again, I think it goes back to under the BL kind of framework and what Mike just discussed, whether it's a matter of safety and and threat of significant harm or the targeting of specific students uh, and impinging on their rights from a a protected classification perspective, um, while not involving online expression, this off-campus expression in McNeil that the Ninth Circuit upheld the regulation of is again another ruling in the Ninth Circuit that would fall neatly into uh, the framework that Justice Breyer and the court set out in BL. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, so this has been really interesting from both of you to wrap up all these these different strands. It's, it sound, feels like BL puts a nice um capper not that i want to indicate that it's the end of the road but on so much of the law we've seen in recent years around student discipline and free speech issues i'd like to ask you both as we start to summarize what we've talked about today what you would tell school district administrators and others would be best practices going forward under the bl opinion Uh, mike do you want to start sure I, I always like to, when I'm talking with clients about these issues, I say to them, assume students have free speech rights and remember that you have the burden of proof. Back to that concept of what did your investigation actually show? And, and maybe the next sort of practice pointer would be to see, can you resolve the situation as a teachable moment instead of regulation of speech or discipline of the student? Um, So I I just think that that's part of the educational process. And so to the extent we can diffuse the situation through principles of civil dialogue um, and that that's always something you want to consider. If it's off campus Mm -hmm. speech, BL ultimately stands for the proposition that you can regulate it, but it's more limited 
than if it's on-campus speech for the reasons that we have, have discussed, but that both prongs of the Tinker Standard will apply, both disruption and colliding with the rights of other students. So, you know, ultimately, I think it's a case-by-case -case analysis. The BL decision is entirely consistent, I think, with Ninth Circuit opinion and California law. So I don't think it's going to be, you know, really much of a change in terms of um, the advice that we give or how school districts go about managing student free speech issues. Okay, great. Sloan, your thoughts? Yeah, not much to add. I think Mike hit it on the head. I, I, I would say with my litigator hat on, uh, while agreeing completely with Mike, and I think it's the central message to school districts around the state that what BL does is largely affirm what they would have been hearing from us or other uh, uh, legal counsel on what they can and can't do in this area. The fact that the Supreme Court identified these red flags, caution flags, uh, the, the in loco parente, parentis concept that it's not, not an issue, the 24-7 isn't your ballgame districts and we need to encourage diverse viewpoints, et cetera. I do think in those cases where they're on the border and, um, and students lawyer up, as is often the case in free speech cases, it'll be those caution flags that free speech practitioners representing students are going to try to lean on um, to push back on the regulation of student expression. And then I would also say, as I foreshadowed earlier, there will continue to be complicated analyses that have to be conducted when we're talking about controversial off-campus expression that does not directly target a given student. And I, I would anticipate this most likely in areas that bleed into religious expression and or race-related discussions that when there is no direct student target, those are going to be some tough calls to make as to whether or not the expression as framed is impinging on the rights of other students if there isn't a specific explicit student nexus or staff nexus to school. And, and I think, you know, you look at Alito's concurrent opinion and the red flags, caution flags by the court, that's going to be the tougher area to go at. And it has been the tougher area for districts for some time now. So that doesn't change, but but that will continue to be where where folks are gonna have to spend the most time thinking thoughtfully about the outcome. Super, thank you. And thank you both. This has been, I think, a really great discussion. It really impresses upon me um, why these cases remain are so fascinating and so important because we're talking about the, the school environment for kids across the country throughout their days, the world in which our administrators work, um, these cases have real impact on real people and um, really, really fascinating to hear you both discuss them. So thank you both for bringing us up to speed and, um, and being with me today. Thanks, Devin. You want, if you stay on the line, Mike and I may talk about free speech issues for the next two or three hours. <laughs> well, I'd like to be a fly on that wall. That'd be fun. <laughs> so, and I think it's, I think it's interesting as we were talking about at the beginning, you know, we all remember these cases over the years unfolding. They have that kind of impact, I think, that goes beyond, um, beyond the academic. So, all right. So I'd like to thank our listeners also for tuning in to our podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lazanasmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.
If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.